Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make supply chain management review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of Talking Supply Chain. Insights on leaders or a special look at Gartner's top 25 supply chains. I'm Bob Turblecock, and joining me today is Mike Griswold. Mike is a research VP in Gartner's consumer value chain team, focusing on the retail supply chain. He's also one of the co-authors of Gartner's list, the top 25 supply chains, which we publish every year in the September issue of Supply Chain Management Review. Mike, welcome. Bob, thanks. Thanks for having me and thanks for continuing to push our research out in your community. Uh, we, we greatly appreciate it. Well, you know, I look forward to the top 25 and also the other things that I do with Gartner uh, through the year. You guys always do great content. Um, and so if you're not familiar with what I call the list, Gartner's annual ranking of the top 25 supply chain leaders, you know, in supply chain, it's the Oscars, Grammys, Emmys, and maybe even the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, all wrapped up in one. It's a coveted list, and it really represents the best of our profession. And of course, it also now includes a list of five supply chain masters who outperform year in and year out. Now, I don't know how long we've been publishing it in SCMR. I've been around since 2013. And it predates me, but it really is one of the articles I most enjoy publishing every year, just reading about what the best of the best are doing. So let's get started and talk about this year's list. Mike, first, I don't think I've ever asked this, but I know Gartner's been doing it for about 18 years. You just told me when we were chatting that you've been around for 17 years. So do you know how the list came about? Uh, yeah, it's it, it's an interesting story. I mean, it started back uh, in the AMR days when, when AMR was really at the, at the front edge of doing supply chain research. And uh, a gentleman named Kevin O'Mara and Deborah Hoffman and a couple of other folks you know, had decided that we need a way to, to start to raise awareness around the supply chain. If we think about 17 years ago, even the word supply chain wasn't used nearly as much as it is today. So the top 25 was developed to really do several things. You know, raise awareness around the supply chain, you mentioned the ranking component. Um, who doesn't love a ranking and and all of the debate and discussion that, that comes from that? But we also realized in the early days of the top 25 that there was a lot of value in getting organizations to share their stories and talk about the cutting edge and the leading edge things that they're doing within their supply chains that others can learn from. So when I reflect on on conversations I have today with companies, yes, they want to understand you know, where they landed and how they can do better, but a significant chunk of the conversations, and I think a significant reason around why we even started this, was so that we could share stories, share best practices, share learnings, so that we could raise the supply chain profession for everyone. And I think we've done that. I think if you look at at you know the leading companies, if you look at you know, some of the metrics that we use as part of the evaluation, supply chain performance has certainly improved, you know, over time. I think it's certainly been raised to the to the front of the line if we think about the last couple of years and the number of discussions that have been happening around supply chains during the pandemic. 
when you compiled this year's list, you know, what stood out? And, and for instance, one of the things I, you know, I read through all those, all those listings because I have to edit. Um, are there commonalities or, you know, the, the ticket that's the price of admission? There, there's a couple things. Let me maybe start because <clears throat> you referenced this year's list. One of the things that I noticed in, in this year's list just was the difficulty in getting into the list. So if I look at the composite score of the top 25 companies, that went up 13% compared to the composite score average from 2021. Company number 25, Alibaba, their composite score was 11% higher than number 25 last year. So just getting into the list, I just mentioned earlier about the improving performance of the supply chain. Getting into this uh, into the list this year was harder than I've ever seen it. That being said, when I look at, you know, what do these companies kind of have in common? There's a couple things. One, and I know we'll touch on it in a little bit, you know, these macro trends and traits that we identify, these leading companies have been embracing them and and doing them before we even came up with, with a name. So, you know, we we talked last year about this idea of being a purpose-driven supply chain. You know, companies like Dell have been purpose-driven long before we called it purpose-driven. You know, companies have been, you know, able to to deal with disruption and, and be more resilient um, over the last couple of years than maybe companies outside the top 25. So it's the ability or these leading companies have the ability to kind of sense and respond to some of these macro trends a little bit earlier than others. They also have uh, a real keen focus and commitment on what's important. If you look at the top 25 companies in the masters, you know, and you look at things they talk about around the strategy and the role of their supply chain, it really doesn't change year over year. They are not susceptible to things like projects of the month, initiatives of the month, of the month, those types of things. They know who they are. They know what they want their, their supply chain to be. And they are relentless in that focus around those areas. That's great. I was actually just going to talk to uh, ask you if there was something that sets apart the five masters beyond consistency, but I think you just touched on that. So one of the things you you publish every year are these macro trends that you just referred to. So why don't we talk a little bit about those? Because I think they were a little bit different this year than last year. The first was uh, the chief supply chain officer as a chief ecosystems officer. And one of the things that caught my attention about that, I've published um, you know a number of articles on ecosystems. And frankly, even having edited them and published them and having conversations about them, I don't know that I always understand, you know, the difference between an ecosystem and a supply chain or a value chain. So I, it's probably a tough concept for some of my readers as well. You know, what is it? How is it different from a supply chain? And if, and if I think of a CSCO as a CEO uh, in, in, with a chief ecosystems officer, how's that role different? Yeah, I, th I think there, there's two elements to that. And I would agree, even as we research and write about this term called an ecosystem, and as we talk to clients about it, I, I agree with you completely. I, I think there's there's still work that we can do on, on the Gartner side to, to kind of continue to articulate that. But when I reflect on the research and I reflect on this particular macro trend, two things kind of came 
came um, you know bubbling to the top. The first is kind of the, this idea of an ecosystem. There's both an internal ecosystem and an external ecosystem. And I'll get to your to answering your question around the distinction between a supply chain and ecosystem as I talk a little bit about that that external view uh, of the ecosystem. But what we're seeing internally is the ecosystem within a company's own uh, organization is a shifting role and span of control of supply chains in these leading companies. You know, when I look at the masters and the top 25 companies, you know, gone are the days of leading companies defining their their internal ecosystem as just distribution center and transportation. 71% of our supply chain top 25 companies tell us they have responsibility for the customer experience or customer service. Nearly 60% own the ESG, uh, environmental, social, and governance responsibility for the organization. And even about 25% of our chief supply chain officers in these leading companies are having some type of IT responsibility, whether that's supply chain IT, and we're even seeing some that, that wear the CIO hat. So the internal ecosystem is really broadening. But to your question, the distinction that we're starting to see between an ecosystem and a supply chain is really that that level of communication and collaboration that's happening outside of the organization. I think, you know, an early stage company from a maturity perspective might define their ecosystem as us and our suppliers and maybe our second level suppliers as well. And to me, that collaboration and that broadening of that definition certainly constitute an ecosystem. But when I look at these leading companies, companies in our top 25, the way they define an ecosystem is certainly our supplier network, but it's also other agencies and entities. It could be working with NGOs. It could be working with, with governmental uh, government regulation types of agencies around you know what's coming up from an ESG perspective. But what was the most interesting element of the research around the ecosystem was this idea of coopetition, where you have consumer products companies, as an example, banding together in a consumer goods forum to talk about ESG types of, of, um, of challenges. To me, the, the, what really came through on the ecosystem piece, Bob, was the fact that in order to solve some of these larger challenges, the ones that are particularly ESG focused, companies are going to have to band together. Companies that even compete are going to have to band together, broaden their ecosystem to be able to deal with some of these emerging challenges, particularly in areas around climate uh, and some of the things that go along with that. You know, that's really fascinating. Um, I just got done uh, in, in the upcoming issue publishing um, an article from, I think it was, it's either Bain or Accenture on this idea of coopetition, uh, you know, within supply chain and also doing a piece with American Eagle, whose chief supply chain officer, uh, you know, decided that as a small to mid-sized retailer, they'll never have the scale to compete with Walmart and Amazon. But if they brought together other like-minded or like-size, um, you know, small to mid-sized retailers who may compete with one another in terms of, you know, for for mind share and market share in the in the strip plaza and the malls, but to combine their volume uh, for 
you know, both shipping or order fulfillment, that they could bring their costs down. And this this no ship, so it was a coopetition kind of model, right? There, they they compete in the marketplace, but they'll cooperate in terms of order fulfillment. And it's really interesting that that's kind of bubbling up in our space. It is. I think part of the challenge with that, and I think part of the reason, you know, you might see or we might talk about examples from, you know, our more of the leading companies is is that requires you know, the, the kind of a next level of maturity. So if I think about, you know, our, our five-stage maturity models, which we have, as I'm sure you've seen for just about everything, you know, stage one, least mature, stage five, most mature. This idea of, of navigating and even maybe leading ecosystem type of discussions is really, you know, late stage three, stage four types of maturity. So that's the other element to this is, is there are things that, whether it's metrics, whether it's some of the, you know, the basic blocking and tackling like sales and operations planning, as an example, those things really need to be in place in order for organizations to have intelligent conversations with those others in their ecosystem to make it work. So it it is one of those things that I think we're going to continue to see grow, Bob, I think as as more and more is is written and talked about the value of an ecosystem, as more is talked about in terms of what are the capabilities you have to have to be an effective contributor to the ecosystem, I think it I I think it's going to grow. We think it's going to grow, um, you know, from a Gartner perspective as well. So the second of your four was the self stabilizing supply chain, and you know, given all of the disruption we've been living through, walk us through what that means. I think you know what what th- this was an interesting one as as well Bob when we did the reveal of the top 25 in May uh and we we kind of highlighted these macro trends after we did the reveal we we had we had I think close to 1000 people on the webinar and we asked them when we when we showed them these four macro trends we said hey of these four which is the one do you th- that you think is most impactful or the one that's going to be most important for you and almost 60% of the respondents picked this self-stabilizing supply chain. Uh, macro trend is the one that's going to be most important for them. And I think to your to your lead-in, it is about the ability to deal with disruption. You know, you, if you look at you know, almost any of our disruption risk management research, the data tells us organizations are going to deal with more disruptions than ever before. The disruptions are, are also going to be more global in nature. So things that were you know, we, we traditionally thought of disruptions as being much more local, like a weather event, as an example. Now what we're seeing is, is a disruption that happens halfway around the world. The war in Ukraine, as an example, has a ripple effect to all kinds of different supply chains. So as we were doing the research, there were really, I think maybe, Bob, I'll refer to them as, as techniques. Three techniques that emerged in these leading companies that are creating this capability around a self-stabilizing supply chain. The first is this idea of being able to have, you know, restructuring transformation teams. So what that means is, is really being able to find the right balance between having teams focus on the, the, the disruptions that are happening in the here and now and how do we deal with that, but also allow them to be reabsorbed back into the business once that disruption has been dealt with. So the ability to have kind of that ebb and flow of skills 
is is one of the first um, traits or techniques we see in in this self-stabilizing supply chain. And that probably would be one that that you know most people would think of within a supply chain. The second one, though, this second technique, I think was was fascinating to to kind of uncover this. And this is the idea of of using adaptive funding techniques. So this is really starting to to think more like a venture capital company or or thinking like, how do we bring that adaptive funding technique into our supply chain? So this is really based on you know venture capital models that allow for transformation budgets to flex up based on pilots, justifying greater scale or flex down in case where experiments maybe don't work out. So the ability to pilot, test, and learn and get that back into the organization uh, is really, I think, a new capability within supply chains and support this idea of of self-stabilizing supply chains. Um, Johnson & Johnson is an example of a company that shifted from kind of this rigid budget cycle to one that can adjust based on agile learning and response to out-of-cycle requirements. And the third technique is really formalizing agile decision-making. You know, what we saw during the pandemic, even before, you know, we started kind of capturing this at, as a technique within this macro trend is we saw organizations really rethinking how they make decisions. Everything from, you know, constrained time to make decisions, this idea that good enough uh, is, is appropriate, reducing the number of required escalations, having singular final decision makers, as well as just introducing this idea of an agile culture. You know, those three techniques are are the kind of the cornerstones, if you will, of this idea of a self-stabilizing supply chain. The last comment I'll make is, is just maybe an overarching observation that these leading companies recognize that that this disruptive world that we live in is now I don't know that I like the term, but it's now the new normal. And we have to be able to figure out how to deal with multiple disruptions across varying geographies and varying durations. And these three three techniques are one way that companies are dealing with it. So it was interesting to me when you mentioned Johnson & Johnson, because as I was listening to this, uh, when to you talking about um, self-stabilizing and the you know, the, the learning quick. Um, I had just had a conversation with Mary Stevens from Johnson & Johnson who talked about, you know, that aspect of their supply chain. And then you brought up J&J. The other is um, uh, one of my authors from Michigan State, Steve Melnick, talks of, he's, he's a history buff, and he talks about how during the Korean War, um, fighter jets were faster than ever. And fighter pilots now had to learn how to make decisions much quicker and differently than they did with World War II fighter jets, which were not quite as fast. Uh, and they didn't have the time to do sort of, you know, they, they almost had to, to make decisions, I'm going to use a bad term, but on the fly. Uh, and then, you know, and then learn later whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision, because if they didn't make a decision, they might get shot down. And it, it, to some degree, when you talk about, you know, re thinking how we do decisions, it, it reminded me of, of that example. Your third, this one really is of interest to me, um, which is the ESG. And it certainly, I've noticed the last maybe three or four years, 
that, you know, with every top 25, there's some aspect of what they're doing around, you know, sustainability or diversity and inclusion as part of the top 25. And it's been a theme of every conference I attended this year. It was the keynote at ISM. And yet, you know, uh, I'm not asking you to get into a political discussion, but in the political climate, you know, there's we're getting pushback from a number of states. And so what I wondered is, you know, how is ESG impacting supply chain? And it seems to me like the ship has sailed, like that, that a lot of these initiatives are just going to keep going regardless of what might be happening at the state government level. But, you know, what do you hear from supply chain managers? Well, it's interesting. We, we put in, um, in 2016, we, we introduced the, 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 at the time, corporate social responsibility component into the methodology. You know, we, we've evolved it over time. Uh, we re, rebranded it, renamed it um, ESG a couple of years ago when we added um, really some S and some G, Ethosphere, which produces an ethical company list, and Bloomberg, which produces a gender equality index. We did that, you know, in large part because we continue to hear from our community that says ESG is important. The environmental aspects, the E component is important, but there's other things that we're now being asked to consider as supply chain leaders, you know, the S and the G, um, you know, to a degree. I also think that there is, you know, growing pressure internally and externally uh, around organizations. You know, you're hearing more and more and you're seeing more and more examples of associates that are pushing organizations to make, you know, comments and decisions um, around areas, both environmental as well as social, right? You know, you had, again, not to make this political, but you had, you know, different reactions around Disney, right? So, that that pressure is is happening, and and, it's, and I think within large um, demographics within it, within a company's associate population, that's going to continue to happen. But another thing has happened, right? A, a kind of a, another funny thing on the way to the forum that happened is now there's external pressure. There's much more external pressure than we saw than we've seen in the past. Whether it's you know, organizations now having to be much more public around their ESG goals and targets. You know, there's now people keeping score. You know, in 2016, frankly, you could pretty much say anything uh, as long as it sounded good around something you wanted to do around the environment and, and you would get credit for that. That that has that's not the case anymore. If you say you're going to do things by 2025, right? People are going to keep score, right? And they're going to remember, you know. And and we're we're seeing more and more consumers, you know, indicate sentiment around voting with their wallet, you know, around more sustainable brands. Although all those pressures, uh, I think, are going to continue regardless of, you know, legislative, you know, at the at the federal level or at the local level. Those pressures are going to continue. And I think another funny thing happened is that organizations realized that, hey, there's actually money in being sustainable, right? There's actually bottom line value that our supply chain can bring to us by being more environmentally efficient. Yes, there, there, there might be some initial cost to that, but there, there's intrinsic value, both that we can see and measure in the bottom line but also this external sentiment and this internal sentiment we, we get from associates. 
which is why in this particular macro trend, you know, we are seeing, to your point, Bob, the expansion of this agenda, which has always been heavily environmentally focused, which isn't a bad thing, but now expanding into, into the DE&I, diversity, equi diversity, equity, and inclusion arena. And people are now starting to talk more about the things as an organization that they're doing in those areas. You're starting to see organizations link compensation, particularly at the senior level, around progress that they're making around DE&I. So you know, I think this topic, the ESG, ESG topic, is only going to continue. There's just there's already momentum, and inertia is probably the, the the more accurate word. There's inertia that's happening that's that's not going to go away, uh, and it's it's just the the pressure is just going to continue uh, for organizations, you know, to do right, you know, by the planet and do right by their associates. So the last one is human-centric digital automation. I have to tell you that term when I read it, like made my head spin a little bit. But um, going back to the Mary Stevens from J&J conversation, she actually brought this one specifically up, you know, by name. And it struck me when I think about the term that it's kind of a balance of the two things that are going on in supply chain today. I mean, on the one, we have the, the push around digital transformation and automation, whether that's you know physical with robots and things in the DC or robotic process automation and AI in the the more uh, you know office things like planning, but the fact that supply chains are still managed by people, you know, how do we balance those two? Help us understand the concept, uh, you know, as you refer to it at Gartner. It's interesting because we we've been talking about you know the the digital journey digital transformation for probably within the context of the top 25 and within the within the context of our of our supply chain events we've been talking about digital and the digital journey and digital transformation for easily for 3 years i think the the orientation around that or the lens that we were looking through was was primarily a technology lens to your point around automation you know, how can we use machine learning and AI? You know, maybe it's even things like blockchain and the Internet of Things. From, so how from a technology orientation can we make our supply chain better? Uh, and I think, frankly, had COVID not happened, we probably would have continued down that road. You know, we talked a little bit last year around the convergence of people and machines. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, it, it still had you know, a, a fairly significant technology slant to it. COVID happens and all of a sudden how we work and where work gets done was completely blown up. Um, we now were in a, in a, you know, early in the pandemic and almost exclusively remote environment. You know, then we started to evolve into a high, more hybrid environment. And, and what we learned during COVID is, is that for many organizations, we were still successful. We could still be successful despite maybe what we earlier thought in a remote environment. So one of the things that came out of our future supply chain work was, was this idea of a reinvention from location-centric work to human-centric work, which basically means all work doesn't have to be done in a physical location. We can start to think about how does work need to get done, what work lends itself to being done together physically, versus work that can be done virtually and still be as productive. 
So that was kind of the impetus behind this macro trend was we were already seeing people focusing and moving away from things being locked to a location to things being how how do we really want to get the work done? We also started to recognize this idea of an employee value proposition and and recognizing that to your point, Bob, we still need people in the supply chain and we will always need people in the supply chain. How do we create a value proposition that takes the associate, you know, or that incorporates the needs and the desires of the associate, you know, not least of which is how does the work get done? So we learned during the pandemic that that we can do remote work, that we can do it at scale and we can do it pretty well. And, and people gravitated to having that types of flex that type of flexibility. So as we think about you know, this idea of human centric, there's really two elements. It's how are we going to go back to work? How do we do that more from an associate perspective and less from a rigid location perspective? But to your other lead into this question, there is also that convergence that's happening. And how do we find the, the right use cases where, you know, things like picking in a distribution center, Right. Maybe that is one where we want to go full on automation, but maybe in a demand planning environment where where the tools don't know as much, uh, at least initially, as maybe an experienced demand planner. How do we start to augment that? How do we start to have people value add um, the starting point that we might get from machine learning and AI? So this idea of human centric digital automation really has two facets. It's how do we bring people back to work? with the person at the center of some of those decisions and how do we find and layer in the right convergence and the right augmentation as we're thinking about our automation strategy. It's a fascinating concept. And and I think you're exactly right. Had it not been, uh, you know, warehousing and distribution is a space that I've spent a lot of time in. And certainly we saw, you know, a huge automation boom. And I think that, boom is still going on, but you still need people to run. You know, I've been through highly automated Amazon warehouses and there's still 2000 people working in them. Right. So trying to figure out how to, you know, balance those things really is, uh, I, I think, one of the challenges for today. Mike, thanks. That's all the time we have today. Again, a special thanks to Mike Griswold and be sure to read the top 25 supply chain in the September issue of SCMR. Thank you for joining. We hope you'll be back for our next episode. We look forward to seeing you then. For SCMR, I'm Bob Troublecock. And Mike, thanks again for being a guest. Thanks for having me, Bob. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.